Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you'll turn there with me. Kind of coming to the tail end here of the reign of King Jehoshaphat in Judah. We've looked at a great deal regarding uh, his life, and chapter 20 brings us to the close of his reign. We didn't quite get out of chapter 20 together last time. We know that he was reigning, uh, tells us verse 31, for 35 years uh, there, uh, or excuse me, reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, Jehoshaphat, as we saw, walked in the ways of his father Asa. He was one of the good and the godly kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But as we've seen, Jehoshaphat did have this one uh, weakness, a glaring weakness, and certainly I'm sure he, like you and I, had other weaknesses as well, but it does seem like in our lives sometimes we talk about kind of an Achilles heel or maybe just an area we're a little more prone to stumbling in, a, an area of weakness that we really kind of kind of find ourselves being a little bit more susceptible to. And for Jehoshaphat, uh, that was in the area of struggling with being able, it seems, to say no to people. And at times because of that, getting himself into... Uh, partnerships with ungodly individuals, getting himself involved in situations that he really had no business being involved in, at times signing up for things he should have never subscribed to, uh, getting engaged in matters that he had no business participating in, and a lot of that stems from just that weakness sometimes that we can have as people to just not have the uh, fortitude in our character to just be okay with telling someone no on occasion. Uh, sometimes that's a part of what we need to do. You know, just recently I had someone contact me uh, who I've been visiting regularly in a nursing home, just going through a really tough time. And uh, the individual, again, I just feel such pity for them going through a very, very difficult time. And when they called me on the phone recently, they said, hey, next time you come in, I feel really embarrassed to, you know, to ask this, but um, uh, could you pick me up a pack of cigarettes? And I said, you know, listen, Honestly, it's neither here nor there, and it's a conscience decision if you want to smoke cigarettes, and if you think the doctor's okay with you doing that while you're in rehab, uh, you can let me know. But I said, my bigger concern is this. I said, I'm a pastor. Uh, I said, and by calling, I'm supposed to be an example to the flock. Uh, and I said, I don't personally smoke, and nor do I drink or use substances. And I said, the bigger issue is that I don't want to be perceived by someone, if they should see me, someone from the church, someone else, hey, there's Pastor Tony picking up a pack of Marlboro, uh, spending wisely his salary that the church blesses him with to do ministry full time. And I said, so I, I think we have to say no on that. Uh, and, and, and again, did I feel bad saying no? Yeah, but uh, there are just some things that it's okay to say no to. Uh, and whether it's something little and simple like that or whether it's, you know, the bigger issues of life that get us maybe involved in much bigger things, being in situations we shouldn't be involved in, a financial commitment maybe we shouldn't make, a relationship we shouldn't get involved in, uh, maybe it's, you know, uh, marrying someone we shouldn't marry. We've all seen that casualty happen among believers at times and the difficulty that goes along with that when they engage in a relationship or a marriage they should have never gotten involved in. Uh, and, and Jehoshaphat kind of had that weakness. We've seen this a number of times. And here at the end of chapter 20, it's almost as if one last time, 
God, by the Spirit, here in the Word of God, wants to drive home this reminder to us again of how important this area of weakness is to kind of guard against because again, again, God discloses to us another occasion where Jehoshaphat falls back into this same kind of trap and even hear how God was merciful to him to help him out in the midst of this weakness. So look with me at verse 35, this last few verses of chapter 20. It says, After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And again, this was a, a recurring thing in, in Jehoshaphat's life where he would make alliances, whether it was with Ahab, the king of Israel, who was a wicked man or other situations or individuals. He would make these partnerships and alliances with ungodly people. He would get himself unequally yoked with people who did not share the same moral convictions that he did and didn't worship and follow God the way he did. And that always causes us to get in a precarious spot. The Bible warns us in the New Testament not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is to engage into close relationship or partnership, whether again, relationally, business, situations, things we engage in together, that it becomes a very unhealthy thing. The Bible cautions us as believers to make these close partnerships and get unequally yoked with unbelievers. It causes complications and problems and us to get off track. And here again is Jehoshaphat, and it says he now allied himself with another one of the kings of Israel, Ahaziah, who acted very wickedly. Jehoshaphat was a godly man. He walked in the ways of the Lord. He sought to avoid wickedness. So for him to make an alliance with someone who acted very wickedly was not a very good idea. But here notice what the temptation was. It was a profitable opportunity in business. It was an occasion to, hey, if we do this, it could be really profitable for us. We could make a lot of dough. We could make a lot of cash and, and really get ahead financially. Notice verse 36 says that he allied himself with the king to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion Gebir. Now, the account in 1 Kings tells us that they made these ships as merchant ships they were building to go to Tarshish in search of gold, to acquire gold, that is to bring back gold. So again, th these were basically ships for a business venture, to go to Tarshish, to gather lots of gold, to increase their wealth and to bring gold back so you can see the motivation. Hey, listen, if your kingdom and my kingdom, we partner together and your business savvy and my business savvy and your finances and my finances, we can come together and man, we can use what you have to bring to the table and I have to bring to the table and we can get gold and we can enrich ourselves and we can get really wealthy out of this. So this is the presentation, it seems, that causes then the alliance and the partnership of Jehoshaphat without saying no to enter into this partnership to make these ships to go in search of gold and Tarshish. But notice what happens as they make the ships. Verse 37 says, But Eliezer, the son of Dodova, of Marisah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat. So God sends a prophetic word from a prophet to come and to caution Jehoshaphat saying to him, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, that is, this wasn't God's will and he's a wicked man and this is not God's purpose for you. He says, therefore, the Lord has destroyed your works 
And then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. So notice God sends word and he says, listen, this is not God's will for you to endeavor in this venture. You've made a partnership and entered into something that God does not want you to be involved in. So thus says the Lord, he wants you to know that he is about to shipwreck your plans. Literally, he's about to shipwreck your plans because these aren't God's plans. And God wants you to know that when these plans are shipwrecked before they ever set sail, it is actually for your safety and benefit to keep you from getting involved in things that God doesn't want you to get involved in. Because if you went to the destination, it'd be way worse for you ultimately. And so he says, God wants you to know that when this happens, it wasn't just a, a, a bad set of circumstances or something took place or was just really bad weather. So, okay, okay, the ships got ruined. It was a bad hurricane season. Let's just build more ships. He said, when the ships are wrecked, no, it was God that wrecked your ship. And God wants you to know that it was him who destroyed the ships so that they were not able to ever sail. And what an interesting thing here to take notice. God in his mercy sees what Jehoshaphat is doing again. And think, Jehoshaphat's done this a few times now. Remember the battle that he got himself into and he just cried out to the Lord and the Lord intervened, protected him and brought him back home safely and said, what were you doing? And now here again, God mercifully intervenes for the sake of his servant, very loving and graciously and rebukes him. But basically God breaks up and ruins the plans to protect and keep him from doing something that would not have been good for him long-term. God literally does something to wreck and to damage all the ships so they're never able to set sail. And what a great indication that God may wreck our plans for our own good sometimes. You know, sometimes we all have the propensity to make plans, whatever they may be, against some thing we're going to pursue or something we think is a great idea. Maybe it's a business venture. Maybe it's a financial thing we're pursuing, something that we're going to make a big commitment to. Maybe it's even a relationship and we are about to set sail and we've got everything in order and we're making plans and we are ready to launch that plan. And in the last minute, God mercifully intervenes and God wrecks our plans. And he does what he has to do to keep us from not being able to go forward. And you know what? When that happens, that is an act of the mercy of God sometimes. That his loving restraint would keep us at times from entering into something that we have no business getting involved in. And maybe it was just our own fleshly carnal motives that were prompting us to pursue something. And God seeing that and God seeing the bigger picture, God says, look, you don't need to go about that in a carnal way. If I want to give you gold, I can give you gold in a different way. You don't have to engage in a business venture with an ungodly man to go chase gold. I'll give you gold if I want you to have gold. I'll give you this if I want you to have that. And you know, I, think God's, I can give you a, a godly spouse if I want you to have a spouse. You don't have to enter into some relationship you shouldn't be involved in. And thank goodness that God does this on occasion in our lives. I'm so thankful when the Lord does step in and overrides, aren't you, and wrecks our plans before they set sail sometimes and doesn't let us be able to do some of the things maybe we would have done that could have caused us a lot of problems. So Jehoshaphat, great lessons to be learned from his life. We can all be prone to the same kind of things. Chapter 21 brings us now to the end of his reign as Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried, it says, with his fathers in the city of David. And then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. 
And it says that Jehoram had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, so he wasn't the only son, he was only the eldest, and the names of his brothers, the other sons of Jehoshaphat, are listed here, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azarihu, Mikael, and Shephatiah, and all these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things. Now, isn't that interesting in light of just what we said Apparently, Jehoshaphat, no pun intended, was living pretty fat, if you understand what I'm saying financially, already. No wonder God ruined his plans to set sail to Tarshish with some ungodly man in a business venture. He didn't need any more gold. He's got enough gold here. Upon his death, he disperses gold and silver to all of his sons. Not only that, it says, and he even sets them up, giving them precious things and fortified cities. So this guy was, was plenty wealthy. He had plenty enough finances, gold, silver, enough to, he has multiple sons and here's all the gold and silver and precious things for you. There's a few cities for you and he sets them up and kind of puts them all in their own locations, gives them an area to rule over. But yet it says, verse three, that he gave the kingdom, that is the, the succession of the throne to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. Now that was the cultural thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes doing what is cultural and culturally relevant, though it may be the way society does things and the way that the world does things, does not always line up with God's design. Uh, it was the typical thing to give the firstborn son, the eldest son, the you know succession of the throne or the primary inheritance, the double portion, but we see throughout the word of God that sometimes God would disregard that. And God would sovereignly say, no, it's the younger son that uh, should be the inheritor of the greater possession. It's the younger son who should take control when the father or the mother passes away because they have more wisdom and they would do a better job with taking control of those things and managing. And, and so at times we see God superseding this cultural idea. But here he does the cultural thing. The unfortunate thing we're going to see is Jehoram, though he was the firstborn and the eldest son, I mean, this guy was a fool. And he was ruthless, and he did not walk in the ways of, of his godly father at all. And more than that, I mean, he just, he just shipwrecks everything that was good in the entire family when he gains control. So what happens here, Jehoram now takes the throne next in the kingdom of Judah. All his brothers are in these different areas. They've been given their own gold and silver. And again, they have their own fortified cities. That was wise of Jehoshaphat. He kind of tried to disperse the power amongst them, hoping that there wouldn't be problems. But when someone has a heart issue, that doesn't ultimately guarantee anything. Because verse 4 says, Now when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, that is once he knew he was in power and knew he had control, he then strengthened himself, and that's never good when a leader is seeking to use his power, his position, to strengthen himself rather than to strengthen and help other people. Servant leadership, proper leadership, again, we call even those in politics, we say they're, they're supposed to be you know, political servants, servants of the people. I mean, it's, it's changed quite a bit in the way politics, unfortunately, in our country unfolds nowadays. Uh, they're supposed to be public servants, servants of the public. I have this power, this position, this role of authority because I'm supposed to be a public servant to serve the public. And here you see this individual, he becomes a king and he's not looking to help the people. He's looking to do what's best for himself. It says he begins to strengthen himself. And the reason is because he's a very insecure man. 
And in his insecurity of what his other brothers have, and maybe they might try and somehow take a claim to his throne or something, look what he ultimately does in his insecurity. It says he killed all his brothers with a sword and also other princes of Israel. So talk about ruthless. Anyone who could have a potential claim to the throne, his own brothers, talk about where's any natural affection, murdering your own brothers? He assassinates his own family members because he wants to eliminate any possibility of anyone being able to somehow take control or have more influence than him. And so to kind of you know, solidify his, his power and his position in his insecurity, he eliminates anyone who could challenge him or he feels might threaten him being in control. And again, that's unfortunately what insecure people do. Uh, insecure people just do things that ruthlessly hurt and harm others uh, because they're insecure in their own position and their own standing. Uh, and so he eliminates by murdering each one of his brothers and other princes of Israel. And verse 5 says, And Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways, that's pretty clear, of the kings of Israel, reference to the ungodly people in Israel and how in the north all the kings in Israel were wicked and ungodly kings. Not one of them served the Lord, unfortunately. He says, just as the house of Ahab, one of the kings known for being most wicked of all the kings, had done, and look what verse 6 gives us a reference to, for he had the daughter of Ahab, her name was Athaliah, we'll see, as a wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So here the Bible gives us this little reminder, reference to one of the greatest uh, motivating factors of him becoming the evil man that he was. And it was predominantly a lot of it in connection to the influences upon him from the wife that he had married and the family that he had now become a part of. Remember, one of the mistakes we talked about, Jehoshaphat, his father made, though a godly man, in this struggle he had with not saying no and getting into compromising situations, is it says that Jehoshaphat, though a good and godly man, married his son, Jehoram, this son right here, to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who were wicked and ungodly as a family. So he took his son, who he raised in the ways of the Lord, and he made a concession. How it happened, we don't know. Dad, come on, just, I mean, they're not that bad of a family and she's beautiful and I'm in love. And so he now allows his son, Jehoram, to marry Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and the wicked and ungodly influences of that upon him as a man lead him to become much like Ahab and Jezebel in his activities. I mean, the guy just assassinated his entire family as soon as he took the throne. And verse 6 wants us to know that one of the reasons why he did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says very clearly there, the Holy Spirit says, for he had the daughter of Ahab as a wife. In other words, the Holy Spirit's trying to emphasize that one of the main reasons he became such an evil man is because of the wife that he had. That is her tremendous influence upon him. And look, folks, Women have tremendous power of influence. Uh, men may be called to be leaders, but women have a tremendous potential of influence, powerful influence. Many and many powerful, strong men in great positions have been drastically influenced, have they not, by a woman. Whether in good ways, 
right? Or, or whether in bad ways. I mean, it works both ways. Depends on how the influence is brought forth. But women have a powerful influence. And his spouse, the woman that he married, had a tremendous influence upon him. We're going to see she was quite a ruthless, evil woman who probably, I don't know, almost might have competed or overcame the wickedness of her own mother Jezebel, this gal Athaliah. She's pretty wicked and ungodly, so it's not a surprise that he would become so evil in the sight of the Lord because of the wife that he had, Athaliah, that was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And look, just a great reminder to all of us, number one, uh, if you are a wife or a future wife, to recognize your power of influence is huge, huge. Use it well. Use that influence well in a good way, not in a way that leads a man towards ungodliness or evil or into sin in some way or concession or compromise because you pressure for this or you just want that. Be careful of that. And by the same token, let me just say, if you're a single man and not married yet, be very careful and consider who you marry because her level of influence upon you will be strong. It will be strong. That power of influence of a wife is incredibly powerful and it can be in a good way or it can be in a very detrimental way to draw a man down uh, and bring him into things he shouldn't be involved in. I mean, any spouse, when you live with somebody and you're sharing your life, the two become one flesh, marriage is about influence. You can't marry somebody and think that you're not going to influence one another. And so here we see a great example of this reality and a good caution for all of us. Verse 7 says, Yet the Lord, despite these things, would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So despite the wicked things that Jehoram was doing as the king of Judah, God doesn't cut off his nose to spite his face. I mean, God works despite what we do wrong at times. And here it says the Lord would not destroy the entire house of, of David because he'd made a covenant with David's line to bring the Messiah ultimately through that line. And so God's plan and purpose, he's still preserving it in his mercy. I mean, he could have just wiped out the house of David, but in his mercy, he's preserving so that he can bring forth his promise still. But verse 8 says, as the deterioration happens because of his evil in the days, in his days, excuse me, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made king over themselves. So he's now losing power. He's losing the ability to be in control of things. He's beginning to have struggles. And that's what happens when we start to do that which is right or wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Things start unraveling in our lives. Edom's revolting against him now. And Jehoram, it says, went with his officers and all his chariots with him, rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And thus Edom, it says, has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. At the time, Libna also, which interesting, was a, a priestly city. So even those who were the, the areas of, of ministry were revolting now against his rule because he had forsaken the Lord God of his father. So others are saying, look, you are not doing things in a way that it's honoring to God. And so people are now rebelling against his authority. They're refusing to support him in his paths of wickedness. Verse 11 says, moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused, that's a sad word, he caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry 
and led Judah astray. So it's bad enough when a leader is wicked and ungodly themselves, much worse when they actually then are leading other people into sin as well. Leading other people astray. And this national leader, Jehoram here, was actually, it says, causing other people to commit spiritual harlotry. The idea is a picture there of just unfaithfulness to the Lord. They were supposed to be like a faithful wife under the Lord. And it was like harlotry or spiritual adultery as they were turning away from Lord, the Lord in betrayal. And he was leading other people astray. And always a very, very sad thing when someone uses their position of leadership and influence and leads other people away from God, leads people astray from what is morally right and pleasing to God. I don't think God thinks very lightly upon that and deals very severely when a leader does that. And we can tell that because look how the remainder of the chapter goes here in chapter 21. It says, and then a letter, verse 12, came to him from Elisha, the prophet. Now, this is interesting because Elisha the prophet mainly ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel. And now he's led of the Spirit to send a letter to the southern king of Judah. One of the very few occasions we have of Elijah ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah, his main ministry was to the northern kings. But Elijah now sends this letter, a very strong rebuke and cautionary warning, seeking repentance. From the heart of Jehoram. And the letter from Elijah said the following Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you've not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab and have also killed your brothers, those of your father's household who were better than yourself. Interesting, the Holy Spirit says, these men were better than you. And yet you had the opportunity and you murdered them and you eliminated them. Behold, the Lord, he says, verse 14, the idea of the discipline and judgment of God coming upon him. Behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease in your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. That does not sound fun. Just in case you're thinking about rebelling against the Lord. I mean, this incredibly sober letter comes now from Elijah, identifies his sin, lets him recognize, look, nothing you have done has gone unseen by God. And the Bible tells us that our sin will find us out. The Bible tells us there is nothing in all creation that, that the eyes of the Lord do not see. God is aware of everything. God sees everything that we do. And it is such utter foolishness to ever think that sometimes we can do things maybe and hide it from others or just because others don't see or just because we haven't been held account to it on a human level or no consequence or judgment has come to us by the people who we've done it to that somehow God's overlooked it or unaware of it or God's not going to deal with us. God's fully aware. And so God identifies the things that he's done, the way he was leading people astray, that he assassinated his own brothers. And the Lord says, if you don't repent, serious judgment is coming upon you. And it would come in the form, notice, 
this particular judgment of uh, being stricken as a form of judgment with a disease in his intestinal tract that literally says by the reason of that sickness that day by day his intestines were going to start to come out of his body. Sounds miserable. Don't know exactly what it was, but certainly not something I want to sign up for. Verse 16, moreover, it says, then the Lord stirred up Jehoram against Jehoram, excuse me, the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. So the indication in verse 16 is the letter comes as sort of a threatening rebuke to try and encourage him to, to repent. Again, keep in mind, until God's judgment falls, there's always still windows of repentance. And we have to understand that as people. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that God's judgment is actually a strange work when God does it. Very unique that it says that in Isaiah, that it's a strange work. The idea is God so much dislikes judging, though he does at times, and he must at times because he's righteous and holy, but he so loves people, and he says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he wants to bless and do what's good, that when God's forced to judge... It, it feels strange to him. It, it makes him uncomfortable, the ideas, because it's forcing him to do something that's not his preference. God doesn't want to judge. He doesn't want to have to be severe, but he offers us warnings and rebukes, and when we don't respond to them, ultimately there comes a line where it's crossed and God in righteousness would be wrong not to judge. And so the exhortation is given apparently he blows past the road sign the warning signal hardens his heart so the lord again verse 16 now it says the lord stirred up against jehoram again this is god doing this he stirs up the spirit of the philistines and the arabians and they come up into judah and they invade it so now god's bringing a interesting foreign enemies invading the land and the lord stirring the invasion Makes us wonder sometimes what goes on in the realm of the spirit behind some of the things we happen, see happen in the world. We never know. Are there spiritual influences at times where God's trying to get the attention of a nation or a leader? God raises up these people to invade the area of Judah and they carry away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz. Now we'll also see he also is referred to as Ahaziah, uh, another way of rendering the name. We'll see in chapter 22, the youngest of his sons. And then after all this, if that weren't enough, because he didn't respond, verse 18, notice, after all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. And it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that is suffering with this affliction for two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness, so he died in severe pain. Uh, the Targums and some of the other writings seem to give inference the idea of almost as if, I hate the word picture, but as if he experienced two years of straight of constipation and blockage until literally the pressure caused his intestines to literally start coming out of his body. Two years of that. Not two days. <laughs> two years of this incurable disease, this painful affliction. Again, God's given him two years in the pain and the affliction. Will you say mercy? Will you say, God, I'm sorry? Two years. Even still, God's afflicting him until ultimately it leads to his severe pain and death as the result of this disease. And his people, verse 19, 
made no burning for him. The idea is a memorial burning like the burning for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Now that is a bad epitaph to have at your death there. Well, you know, usually when somebody dies, people are sad and sorrowful that they've departed. And they grieve that their loved ones departed. Oh, we've you know, lost someone that was so valuable to us. You know, we've lost a good man. We've lost a good woman. And, and, and they sorrow. And here it says that this man lived his life in such a way that when he died, it says, to no one's sorrow, he departed. Imagine that on your tombstone. To no one's sorrow, this man departed. I mean, what a sad thing. That is a testimony of a life that was lived in rebellion to God and just worthless and had no care or concern from people. What a, what a sad, sad epitaph. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says, Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place, for the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. And Ahaziah, it tells us, was 42 years old when he became king and reigned, just notice, one year in Jerusalem. Now, uh, you may have a little star in your Bible, a, a note maybe even uh, you know, at the bottom of your page there. It says that he was 42 years old when he became king. The account in 1 Kings tells us he was 22 years old when he became king, not 42 years old. Now, it would seem that that is more accurate, 22 years old, because his father died when he was 40. So for him to be 42 years old when he became king wouldn't really seem to add up there. And so likely the account in 1 Kings is more accurate that he was 22 years old when he became king. And what we probably have here in verse 2 is probably what we refer to as a copyist error where sometimes just a, a, a yod or a, a tittle, a small uh, you know, dash or something in the Hebrew language can cause a number to be in some ways interpreted in a way that is just a little bit different than it is in another location. And as the copyists of the manuscripts are making copies upon copies, sometimes there would be these insignificant and small copyist errors. Keep in mind, we, we believe that the scriptures are inspired in Aaron and infallible in their original manuscripts when they were given to us, but yet copy upon copy upon copy, we do have at times sometimes small copyist errors from translation to translation in different translations when manuscripts were used. And copyist errors at times like this arise. And look, it shouldn't be something that, oh, a freak, oh, does that mean? Listen, anytime these little copyist errors exist, it never in any way affects anything to do with doctrine, anything of value or importance or interpretation to the text. It's the issue of somebody's age. Was he 22 or 42? I don't really think that makes a big amount of difference. The guy only reigned for a year anyway. <laughs> but we do have these on occasion. And so sometimes if you see these small discrepancies in a number thing, that's kind of the root of what you see happening there on occasion. The bigger issue is notice what happens with Ahaziah. It says his mother's name was Athaliah. Remember, she was the wife uh, who led uh, his father to do great evil and now this wicked woman who led her husband to do great evil which led to his severe painful death now look what it says this ungodly mother who it says he also that is Ahaziah the son now who's reigning walked in the ways of the house of Ahab that is the way of wickedness for 
specifically told, verse 3, his mother advised him to do wickedly. His mother advised him to do wickedly. Again, the influence of a mother. The powerful influence of a mother. You know, what's that statement we say? You know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. <laughs> the, the influence of a mother is strong. What a mother says and can pull on the heartstrings and the you know and the, the opportunity she has to speak into the life of one of her children and hear how sad to see this wicked, ungodly wife leads her husband into destruction, and now it says this mother advised her own son who's now on the throne to do wickedly. She gives him ungodly counsel and wicked advice and leads him astray by the power of influence. Again, just another reminder when, again, when uh, the father, Jehoram, chose to marry Athaliah, this woman here who was his wife and the mother of his children, he also did not take into consideration, hey, what kind of wife will she be? But whenever you marry somebody, you should also be saying, what kind of mother will she also be? Because someday she may very well be the mother of my children. And how might she advise my sons or influence my daughters? And here's this ungodly, wicked woman. She advised her own son to do wickedly. What a sad, sad thing when a mother, actually a mother, father, advises their own child to do wickedly. But yet it happens. So sad, and God takes note of it. And Verse 4 says, Therefore, in light of that, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors, that is his wicked mother, his ungodly grandmother and grandfather, Ahab and Jezebel. These were his counselors after the death of his father. Look at this, to his destruction, because he followed their advice, verse 5 says. Wow, his own mother, grandmother, grandfather, they were all wicked and unrighteous people, but yet he let these individuals be his primary counselors, and it says he listened to their advice to his own destruction. Listen, I think the Bible certainly commends there's value in listening to our mother, to our father, to our grandparents. They have more wisdom than us. They're older than us, but you also need to make sure they're giving you godly counsel, not wicked counsel. Not ungodly counsel, not unbiblical advice, and that can happen. And so you got to weigh those things out there and be careful. It says, he made these individuals his counselors and listened to their advice and followed their advice to his own destruction. By following their advice, it destroyed his own life. A great reminder once again in the Bible, beware of letting ungodly people be your counselors. Be very selective in who you let be the counselors in your life. Beware of letting ungodly people be your counselors because it could be dangerous, very dangerous to follow bad advice. So he followed their advice, particularly it says, verse 5, and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram, and then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Azariah, again, another derivative of Ahaziah's name, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, that is, after the battle, the son of Ahab in Jezreel because he was sick. So he now goes to visit his cousin, again, who unfortunately is an ungodly man. And verse 7 says, his going to Joram was God's occasion for Ahaziah's downfall. Interesting, God uses everything 
in everyday circumstances to accomplish his plans. And God was bringing the downfall of this man. And now God uses this simple visit to go see his ungodly cousin to ultimately be the thing that leads to his own downfall. For when he arrived, verse 7 says, he went out to Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, who the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. That is, this man Jehu, the account first kings tell us, was sort of you know, a, a instrument that was used to eliminate the household of Ahab. And as he's on this rampage to eliminate the household of Ahab, He's with the wrong people in the wrong place, and because he's hanging out with the wrong people, he ends up getting hung together with those people. And he ends up losing his life because he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because it happens, verse 8, it says, when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, that he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who served Ahaziah, that is the nephews in the family, and he killed them. And then he searched for Ahaziah. And they caught him, and he was hiding in Samaria. And they brought him to Jehu. And when they killed him, they buried him because they said, He is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power over the kingdom. So now Judah loses this man who was their reigning king at this time. And remember old mom Athaliah, the wicked wife who became the wicked mom who influenced her son with bad advice and advised him to do wickedly well look here comes her true colors now all of a sudden the king is dead ding dong the king is dead and she's thinking all right this is my opportunity here time to 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 exercise the fullness of my sinful flesh she's an opportunist and a power hungry woman look what happens as the chapter concludes it says now when athaliah the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead, not, oh, let's grieve, let's mourn. She sees her son is dead. She arose and destroyed, that's assassinated, killed, murdered, all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. So she sees her son is dead, who was the reigning king, and she sees nothing but opportunity. Again, where is natural human affection? She sees this as an opportunity to gain power and position for herself, to advance herself, and she systematically, therefore, assassinates all her own grandchildren. She murders her own grandkids, murders and tries to take out everyone who potentially could be an heir to the bloodline of the throne in Ahaziah's position and seeks to systematically eliminate them. But look what happens, verse 11. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah. So one son was spared when this murderous plot of assassination was unfolding. And she stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, put him and his nurse in a bedroom. And Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah, the only woman who reigned in Judah and Israel's history, reigned over the land. This wicked witch of a woman, Athaliah, murderously destroyed her grandsons and all the family and thought she got them all, but one was somehow spared. Now, 
couple things let me say in connection to this. First of all, keep in mind what's going on here. Is this indeed a woman, a woman who is just selfish and evil and a wicked woman that just is power hungry in one's position? Yes. Such things actually do exist. There are people, not only men, but women like that in the world. And certainly that's what's taking place in the flesh. But more than that, this line that is seeking to be exterminated in the line of Judah, what is it also? It is the messianic line of King David's family. What did God say would be the way where he would bring the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to bring salvation through David's family line? And so now here is this woman in her selfish, sinful humanity being directly influenced in this diabolical way by satanic undercurrent to try and do what? Eliminate the line of the Messiah. To try and destroy the very family line that God said prophetically the Messiah and Savior would come into the world. Is that a surprise? Satan wants to ruin the line, to ruin that which would bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ to offer salvation to us. And yet, thanks be to God, here is this one woman, Jehoshabeth, married to Jehoiada the priest. So here's this woman. She's a priest's wife. She's a minister's wife. And she says, you know what? What is happening is horrible. This is ungodly. And we need to intervene. And we need to do what we can to spare a child and she steps in spares this obviously very young child because he's only seven years old we're going to see in the next chapter when he comes to the throne so he's probably somewhere like an infant he's got a nurse still he's being wet nursed by some woman hidden away in the house of god for six years she intervenes they spare the life of this child in this loving act they preserve this child and in so doing they actually preserve the eternal redemptive plan of god because this one man and one woman had enough love in their hearts to say, we should step in and help that kid out. And they had no clue the far-reaching impact of what they were going to do. They spare the life of this child from being destroyed and ruined. And because they kind of adoptively bring this child into the house of God and say, we're going to protect him and raise him in the ways of the Lord and give him a chance to live the way God wants, they have no clue the far-reaching impact. They actually spare the line of Messiah. They spare the messianic line that brought Jesus Christ to you and I in this incredible act here. But for six years, it says, verse 12, as he's hidden with them in the house of God, while he's growing up a little bit, getting older, it says, Athaliah reigned over the land. And I want you to consider something. That means for six years straight, all the people in Judah, from their perspective, circumstantially, it looked like what? Like God's word had failed. It literally looked like evil had triumphed. It looks like God's word had failed. It looked like the promise of God did not come to pass. And it appeared for six long years that God's plan didn't work. That God didn't come through. And that evil had won. And that evil had triumphed and God's plan wasn't going to come to pass. And for six long years, people sat struggling, wondering, with no circumstantial evidence whatsoever that God's plan was still at work. And they had no idea. And for six years, 
They had to wrestle with that reality. Where's the evidence of God's work? It's been six, almost seven years. Where's God's word? It looks like God's plan has failed. I don't see any way. It seems like that God lost when the reality was all the while God was in complete control. And God had this little boy, like a toddler, running around, playing with his Tonka trucks, three, four years old, helping light the incense and just with his aunt and uncle, growing up in the house of God, being raised in the ways of the Lord. And in the seventh year, interesting, seven being the year of completion in the Word of God, in the seventh year, God's going to bring forth and unfold his plan and he's going to foil all the appearance that the devil actually had won and God had lost. And boy, it was a testimony of faith. And what must it have been like, we'll see in the next chapter, when this son was brought forth after everybody thought hope was lost and it was just, there's no way, it's been been sick. And in that seventh year to realize, wow, all that time we were so despondent, despairing, discouraged and thought God had failed And God was faithfully lining up the right time in the right way. And God had a plan over here the whole time. And they just couldn't see it with their own eyes. What a great reminder. Look, sometimes it may be like that. Circumstances may indicate that evil has triumphed. The devil has won. God's promise, God's words not coming to pass. Listen, can I encourage you? Don't believe that for a minute. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith. Believe God's word, trust God is in control. Even when your eyes say one thing, don't look at the circumstances because circumstances may mislead us in a wrong direction. Trust God by faith and continue to rely upon his ability to control things. Let's stand together.